Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, where this week we celebrate Bridget's Day and Lunar New Year all at once with the help of some electronica from Vietnam and a song cycle from Kildare. But we begin this time with the Dubliners of ancient Sicily. Classicist Ferdia Lennon has set his debut novel Glorious Exploits in the Greek world as it's convulsed by the Peloponnesian War. That's 412 BCE for anyone who dozed off in that module. In the city-state of Syracuse on the island of Sicily, the survivors of the unsuccessful invading army of Athenians have been enslaved in the city's quarries. Two locals who decide the captives surely know the hits of the Athens stage hatch a plan to get up the Sicilian premier of the latest from Euripides. Far away in space and time from the contemporary Hibernian metropolis, you might imagine, but not entirely in the telling of Ferdinand. Lennon, who came to Culture File Towers to say more. Okay, so this is taken from chapter 11, where Lampo and Gellon are looking for someone to help them fund the production, and they end up on the merchant ship of a mysterious collector. I peer into the room. It's dark, though a few lamps sputter in the corner. It takes a while for my eyes to adjust because the air is smoky from the burning oil. But slowly my vision clears and I take it in. Scarlet carpets, two couches laid out, like the ones you sometimes glimpse through the windows of Aristo's gaffs. Gallon is on one of those couches, a goblet in his hand. Across from him, on another couch reclining, is the fella who tried to buy the homeless bastard's rope. I can tell from the rings in his ears and the white teeth. So this is the collector. I was a little bit jaded with the convention of depicting people in the classical world as all almost sounding like they've stepped out of, you know, Lord Grantham and Downton Abbey. And in addition to that, so I wanted to jolt the reader, but also Sicily had been colonized a few hundred years before the events of this novel. So it's probable that the Greek, the version of Greek spoken there would have been a bit different. And when I was looking for a parallel to that, I didn't have to look very far. I thought of Irish, Hiberno-English, where you almost have the structures of the old language playing underneath and, and, ha- and, and creating a language that's English, but a little bit different. Because the way you've structured things, it does make us think about the Irish-English relationship because you have the, the sort of Athen- or the Athenians or the upper-class people seem to have English accents and the <laughs> other people have uh, Irish Dublin accents. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose I was using... That, that seemed like a handy metaphor, given that Athens was the great maritime power of the day and England was a, was a great maritime power. Tell us a little bit about the Peloponnesian War as it related to Sicily and, and to Syracuse. Essentially, it, the Peloponnesian War was mostly this war between Athens and Sparta, but essentially it brought in all of their various allies and it spread across the Greek world. Um, all the way over to Sicily. And in Sicily, you had people that were on the side of Athens for city-states like Catania, and then you had city-states, the majority of which that were on the side of um, Sparta, because there was real fear, essentially, that Athens was... that Athens' imperialistic ambitions would not be sated, you know? Um, And essentially, what was also interesting, because we see these parallels you know, to this day, when Athens invaded Sicily, it was never presented as a war of conquest. 
they actually kind of um, narrated it as if it were a humanitarian intervention. Whereas behind the scenes, it was very much understood, actually, we'll, we'll set up this base and then we'll expand and we'll expand to the point that the idea was that if they, if they did manage to conquer Sicily, they probably might go on to Carthage afterwards and use all the various resources to go back to Greece and essentially be unstoppable. I step in and sink into a carpet so thick it rises above my ankles. You came, says Galon, frowning, but I can see in his eyes that he's pleased, relieved even. Of course. The collector looks over at me and smiles. His teeth are ridiculously white and arrow straight, yet there's an animal feel to them, like they belong in the maw of something larger in the woods and not a merchant nibbling grapes. If you go to Sicily and you go to Orchigia, a really, really beautiful place, and what you notice is about a 15-minute walk outside of the city centre, there are these limestone quarries that have been prisons. They were the prisons where thousands of Athenians were kept, and most of, most of which, most of whom would have died. And it's, a, I suppose, a very strange juxtaposition because you have the limestone quarries, then nearby you have the theatre, the, like the stone kind of theatre, ancient Greek amphitheatre of Sicily. When the book is set, there would have been a theatre, but it would have been made from wood. Like in Athens, you know, yeah, these the original kind of theatres were made of wood and then afterwards stone structures were built. So my two heroes, um, one is a very focused, theatre-obsessed, in many ways grieving kind of melancholy Syracuse and Gelon, and then his best friend, the narrator Lampo, who's a lot more exuberant but in some way directionless. Lampo is almost along for the ride, and then he gains purpose as, as the novel goes on. As well as using the sort of contemporary Hiberno-English, you also have a little bit of sort of quite deliberate anachronisms about the business of show business, and they <laughs> conceive of themselves as directors. There's a shadowy figure who turns out to be a producer. There are production assistants, even. Yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, to a certain degree, the... It's so far back, you know, 2,500 years, that the ins and outs of how these... We know a lot, but there's certain gaps. You know, there would have been directors. There would have obviously been, uh, I think, the choreogi, the people who were producers come directors who would fund the projects um, and organise the, the costumes, etc. The big Euripides play that Gelon wants to get produced is Medea. So, you know, the famous tale of vengeance of Princess Medea. Um, and it's probably his most famous play. However, quite coincidentally, um, or not necessarily coincidentally at all, on the eve of the Sicilian expedition, so on the eve of this invasion of Sicily, uh, Euripides wrote what many consider one of the great, you know, anti-war plays, or one of the probably the greatest anti-war play, the Trojan Women, and it's about the defeated women of Troy in those last days or last hours just before they're shipped off as slaves to Greece. And many believe that this was a response to the Athenian invasion of the island of Milos, where they had essentially massacred the entire male population and sold the women and children into slavery. And that Euripides wrote this play almost immediately afterwards as a, you know, an indictment and um, as a criticism of, the, of Athenian foreign policy. But if he had hoped that it would curb the Athenian lust for kind of more conquests, it didn't. So um, in, in a kind of ironic twist, probably some of the people who would have acted in the Trojan women 
would simultaneously have been preparing their their military equipment for this new invasion of Sicily. Um, so my heroes essentially learn that there's been this whole new Euripides play, Trojan women, that no one in Sicily has ever seen because of the war. And when they find that out, particularly Gellon, he knows he has to he has to see the play, he has to save the play. The door opens behind us and this ancient servant hobbles out, holding a tray with another golden goblet and a jug. The old man wheezes as he pours and looks so frail I think he's going to keel over. But my cup is filled and he retreats out the same door he came in. Is that fella alright? Again, that white smile. Agenor is younger than he looks. Well, he looks about a hundred. Exactly. He's 92. Right from when I was a kid, I was fascinated. I would, you know, one of those kids who would learn off the, the names of the various Greek gods and then ask people to test me on them. I studied it in university and that, that was my degree. And then afterwards, I did a master's in creative writing in uh, the University of East Anglia, which is um, in Norwich. Um, and I've been writing for a, it's, it's a short novel, but I've been working on it for quite a long time. In, uh, in um, the University of East Anglia, they actually have a special component for historical fiction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was really useful for me. So my professor, Rebecca Stodd, is a you know, brilliant historical fiction and writer herself and academic. And it was a great combination of showing us and introducing, introducing us to really interesting writers of historical fiction and then encouraging us to do our own work. Um, yeah, so that was, it was a really great experience, actually. I was wondering about how, how among historical fiction writers, like the fetish is often some, some kind of accuracy or yeah. a sort of hyper-authenticity. And I mean, you're not obsessed with that, I think maybe is the way to put it. Yeah, I'm not. I suppose as well, I feel, when you go back that far into the past, what would be, I think if, I, if I'd written this book and I'd had people sound like characters from a, you know, from a George Eliot or a Dickens novel in like 19th century RP, people would almost be like, oh yeah, that's accurate. But actually it's no more accurate. And I would say in some ways, in a, in a truer sense, less accurate than what I've tried to do, which is give a sense of the, the different classes, the colonial past. Um, and I used contemporary, a kind of more contemporary voice. I didn't want to have technological anachronisms. And I feel if you, for example, if you read an Aristophanes play, and they're the only kind of um, Greek, ancient kind of Greek plays that are kind of, that we have in their entirety that are set in the contemporary period about people of the day. And you'll notice that translators need to use slang and things that might seem anachronistic because they realize in order to capture that voice, the kind of more traditional um, 19th century depiction that we're used to doesn't really fit. Accuracy is almost impossible trying to convey that period. What I've done is a, is a kind of playful, it's playful, but I feel like I'm, it, it's to a purpose. When you look at Sicily, it's, it's these endless series of invasion and, and sites of, you know, colonial, uh, com, you know, competition down through the, you know, all the way up until World War II. So like after this novel is set, you know, there's a new invasion and that's from the Carthaginians. So it, it never ends. And I suppose as Thucydides says, you know, 
in his history of the Peloponnesian War, human nature being what it is, these things will happen again and again. Ferdia Lennon there on his novel Glorious Exploits. And if you're a book listener, the author has performed Glorious Exploits. He does all the voices for the audiobook version. One of the events celebrating this year's Dublin Lunar New Year Festival, which kicks off tomorrow, is a new outdoor commission, The Journey of the Dragons. The collaborative project brings together champion aerial dancer and choreographer Lisette Kroll with a soundscape from Lee, an Irish-Vietnamese DJ who operates the turntables under the name DJ Lai Chi. Culturefile went to the graciously proportioned tribe pole dancing studio, yep, in central Dublin, to meet DJ Lai Chi and hear some work in progress. Nice. Okay, let's try Did you save that or something? Or are you saving the um, I just put, like, little cue points. Like, I uh, we're in Tribe Studios. We're actually in the changing room. But it's just, like, a uh, aerial and, like, pole dancing studio in the industrial estate in East Wall. Yeah, no, that's fair. But, like, no, probably, yeah, I think it's best ever. But we were just, um, I was just with Lizette practicing for our um, aerial like, performance on the 11th of February in Meeting House Square for Dublin Lunar New Year. So I guess like I'm, it's in Meeting House Square, so it's like a very like large open space. And um, yeah, so we have like some aerial silks, some aerial hoop, aerial pole. So yeah, just loads of people spinning elegantly while I sit in the corner and push some knobs. Were you familiar with that kind of dance work before this? Uh, no, not at all. Like even when I first met Lisette, it was re really like opening up my eyes to a new sort of performance. Like primarily like the, you know, I guess I really only engage with like kind of electronic music or like, you know, like or just kind of music in general is like a social thing. But I've never really looked into more of like the performance aspect of things like I don't know, I've maybe been to like two plays in the past two years, so I think it helped me to kind of challenge ways in which I can kind of be inspired from like different ways in which we can express ourselves. And you can do events that you don't have to have that too loud, because yeah. you need to hear him anyway, so it will be like really background. I'm just gonna like cast it, I don't know. Yes, okay, yeah. that song, that is her. Okay. I played the piano since I was a kid and then when I was in like school I picked up the cello and then like was in an orchestra for like six years until I graduated and then couldn't avail of like the free <laughs> instrument thing but um, yeah I was just in like my local school orchestra and then I think in the state orchestra for one year yeah. And when did you come to Ireland then? Uh, when I was 18. Uh, my dad's from Ireland so I kind of just um, like wanted to well first of all college was just too expensive in America and I kind of wanted to feel closer to my like dad's side of the family I, well, like it's kind of weird for me because like I was like 16 when the pandemic started so I kind of lost a lot of like that like experimental or like you know like getting to go out when you're a teenager uh, so I think for me and like loads of people my age it was kind of like 2020 2021 was like the first times they're actually like in a club so I think when I was like first going out there wasn't really much of um like many nights being run by like people my age, like I'd be going out to things like, I don't know, like Club Comfort where everyone is like a millennial. And like, that's that's excellent. And I think it really helped to expand my worldview and like ideas of like, you know, what you were meant to achieve at a certain age and like what, you know, sort of social boundaries like are present in the first place. 
But yeah, it's kind of cool now. I feel like loads of my peers are also doing amazing things and it's really nice to feel part of a community. There's a song uh, by a Vietnamese producer, Tiny Giant, um, called Ngay Mai, which means New Day. And it's kind of just, um, I just really like, it's off this uh, compilation called Nhat Gay, based in Saigon, which kind of does like really experimental, like club, uh, kind of just like electronic music. Um, Nhat Gay means like breaking music almost. And I think to me, like it's a really important label just because Vietnam like has like historically struggled a lot with like censorship and it's really hard to kind of have like transgressive like art there in general uh so to see and like I guess like even this compilation is like a lot of um Viet Gu, which means like Vietnamese people from overseas like contributing to it and kind of creating like a global Vietnamese identity but yeah the song itself is kind of like sampling I guess like it starts off with like loads of field recordings and then like a beautiful like traditional song starts like making its way in and then towards the end it gets like super like glitchy and like yeah it's, it's cool to I guess it's like a really interesting sort of like progression of a song. We're just using the intro for it because I think the actual song is like six minutes long or something but yeah I'm excited to have some Vietnamese music in there. I think, I guess it's something I have like a bit of a weird relationship with of like being like meet myself like being Viet Gu, like overseas Vietnamese. I kind of feel like a bit of a disconnect from my culture and I guess like a lot of the electronic, like I think Vietnam really loves electronic music and like I was there over the summer and you'd hear like, it'd be like 2 p.m. like, you know, just on like a sh in the shopping mall and you'd hear like donk music. And yeah, I think it's like house, you know, like there's like, there is, constantly like dance music and like electronic music around you but I kind of struggle with I guess a lot of the sound I'm drawn to is very like glitchy or very like I don't know arrhythmic and I feel like you know because the, like the alternative scene in Vietnam is quite new and also partially because I'm quite removed from it and I don't know what's happening there I really struggle to find like a lot of Vietnamese music that I completely resonate with but I don't know I think it's definitely worth like maybe challenging my own beliefs on that. And I'm sure there is loads of, like, I don't know, like in general, I really do think it's important to kind of represent my own culture and like, especially represent like Southeast Asian and East Asian, like sounds like in my DJing. Just been watching you uh, working there and it you're actually getting into the nuts and bolts of the songs it's not just selecting you're you're going in and taking them apart and reassembling them it's not something i typically do or i guess like if i'm practicing for djing it would just be more like how, you know like what's the vibe um but yeah i guess because this is like a rehearsed performance and like people are actually making routines to it you've just kind of been like going into the particular songs and seeing like what needs to be looped and what needs to be cut in order to suit the performance better. And tell me about your setup there. Oh, it's uh, it's just my laptop and then a DDJ 400, which I actually just bought from adverts yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it took me like an hour to get there by bus. So it was like a whole journey. Yeah, I've used like them before, but I don't know, I guess for like, I've been DJing now for two years and I've never actually had like decks of my own and then 
last week. Well, this performance partially was like a reason why I wanted to actually buy my own decks. And then I was like, you know, like I need to, I need to commit to the bit. I need to be serious about being a DJ. <laughs> DJ Lychee there, who is soundtracking The Journey of the Dragons, featuring Lisette Kroll and dancers on Saturday 11th of February in Meeting House Square, Dublin. And DJ Lychee's Lunar New Year playlist is available on Spotify. Follow us on your favourite post-Twitter platform for the link. And as well as starting off the Lunar New Year Festival, this weekend in Ireland we celebrate Ireland's first public holiday dedicated to anti-capitalist resistance. OK, that's not officially what it's about, but with the hotly contested and apparently malleable figure of free booze enthusiast Bridget at its centre, the festival does feel ripe for such steering, not least in the hands of our guest this time, Sivo Sullivan. O'Sullivan is a Kildare-based singer and songwriter who created the In Cloak and Womb song cycle inspired by the life and legacy of Bridget of Kildare and commissioned as part of the Bridget 1500 season. O'Sullivan will be performing the cycle in Kildare as part of this year's festival, ahead of which she spoke to Culture Files' Angela O'Shaughnessy about Bridget, our contemporary. I am storm upon the sea Bridget is a kind of a figure who's, she's on the rise at the moment. She exists within religious worlds and also outside of them. She has her own bank holiday now and people are talking about her, but still maybe not really understanding the significance of her. When I started out, I honestly wasn't sure what she meant to me. I grew up learning about her in school. We made the crosses. She seemed kind of cool, you know. Bridget is this historical slash mythological figure, but what are her messages now? Like, how can I take the stories and weave them forward in time to how we're living now? Like, why is it important that we embrace our folklore and our mythology and, and her in particular? So the performance itself is called In Cloak and Womb. It's a series of five songs. It's a song cycle, uh, which is a song cycle that I wrote last year uh, under the Bridget 1500 scheme. The songs are have quite an environmental theme, mostly, um, and kind of using the echoes of some of the stories that surround her to kind of look at our place in the world today and, and how we might think differently about it, I suppose. This was so different from anything that I've normally done in that it was, you know, so specifically thematic. And also it's written and arranged for three female voices, kind of taken inspiration from the folklore and the mythology surrounding Bridget in both her goddess and saint forms and kind of exploring how the echoes of her voice and her stories resonate in the world today, what those echoes might contribute to the stories we're living in now, particularly in relation to environmental issues and climate change, and of course social justice as well, because those things are all interlinked. I'm performing the songs with two other singers uh, called Sharon Murphy and Clara Rose, uh, who are both fantastic other songwriters in their own right as well. It's such a pleasure to be singing these songs with them. I went down to the world to Before I started writing, I, I got the funding to write the songs and I was kind of scared that I was not going to be able to do it. And I went and I visited her well in Kildare. It's really beautiful. It is quite a spiritual place. Um, and I kind of felt, I was like, why did I come here today? Why did I come to this well? 
I wouldn't be a practicing religious person. I, I could be a victim of my own cynicism sometime. But in some way, I came here to ask for help doing this and to ask for inspiration. And I suppose I'm asking Bridget. I'm asking the essence of Bridget for that. But what am I asking when I ask her? I'm asking the land. I'm asking the trees. I'm asking the soil. I'm asking the birds. I'm asking the worms. So I think what she represents for me is is connection, really. In all her guises, she stood for compassion um, for her fellow humans, but also just for the the more than human, the natural world. And she was a figure that was very much tied uh, to the land. One of the books that I read when I was writing these songs was by Rita Minahan, who's actually a Brigidine nun in a place called Solace Freed in Kildare. And she said Bridget is a figure that stands on the cusp of worlds, whether it's Christianity or the pre-Christian. Neither of those worlds can contain her exclusively. And actually, it doesn't matter um, because whatever your backgrounds or beliefs, we're all sharing this planet and this planet is kind of crying out for help at the moment. And are we listening? particularly when you look at the the pagan or the pre-christian goddess Bridget she was quite fiery I think that she would be asking us to like maybe take a few steps back and take a different turn you know one of the things that I kind of dove into when I when I was looking at stuff about Bridget was this idea of ritual when you talk about kind of Celtic revival and Gaelic revival is the idea of ritual and I think if, if Bridget had a message for us now it would be like go back to the things that help you find meaning and that help you find connection because at some point when you lost that I think it's when we turned into this culture of individualism and consumerism and exponential growth so I think if 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 Bridget had a message she'd be saying forget all that that's doing you no good are you I don't know how to stop. <laughs> this is a question I've been asking myself a lot more recently with particularly with everything that's going on in the world and especially like I've been really affected by what's happening in Palestine and I've been asking myself like what is the point in singing and what is the point of being an artist and I think singing is an expression of freedom. It's a pure expression of what's in you and I think culture is a form of resistance and I think that's what protest songs are as well. I think in order to get everyone on board, we need stories and we need different types of brains talking about the same things in different ways that are going to bring different kinds of people along. And I think that's what music and art and poetry can do. My life is your life. Your Irish sometimes it is really different there's a little bit of Irish in this song cycle as well I am one of these people whose Irish has been nearly there for you know (laughs) years and I keep getting to a certain point but I actually love singing in Irish it's kind of strange I suppose because you have to compromise a little bit when you're translating but the little bit of Irish that's in this song cycle it's the first time I've actually kind of written it in Irish and that's yeah it's a really different experience I guess every, physically it's a different experience, you know, you, you're making different shapes, you're 
doing different things with your the musculature of your mouth. Uh, but also there's even as somebody that isn't a Gaelgore, there is a connection there that when you sing in Irish, it comes from a different place or something. <laughs> The Diocese of Kildare and the Diocese of, I guess it was Donegal, were, were kind of like fighting over who would become the, the patron saint of Ireland. Would it be Patrick or would it be would it be Bridget? And that's where, you know, a lot of the, the stories that we have about them, because these these were this was after they died. So there was kind of stories being invented about both of these people to make them seem better than the other one. And of course, Patrick won that battle in the end. But I think Bridget is finally having her revival now. And my power, my pride. My hunger to survive. Saivo Sullivan there on her In Cloak and Womb, a song cycle, and the reporter was Angela O'Shaughnessy. Details of all Kildare's Bridget 1500 events are at bridget1500.ie. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more mythological resistance next Saturday tea time via podcast and through the ether on RTE Lyric FM. Till then, bye now.